Well, good morning, good morning, good morning. So good to be here. Different uh, change of scenery a little bit. Don't have our living room. We've got the church, so um, it's good to be in both locations, and it's good to just have technology that enables us to do this. And so we are so thankful that we can still connect, and um, we're praying that our connection this morning would be um, with God and his word by the power of his spirit. And so we're going to open God's word in the book of Matthew. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 33. Matthew 12, starting in verse 33. And I'm just going to read the text as we go through it. So I'm not going to read it all at once, but we're going to be going um, all the way down through verse 42. So 33 through 42. Let me, let me just set the stage for what we're going to have today. Chapter 12, if you remember, the last couple weeks has been mainly about resistance to Jesus. And the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they hate him. And we've seen how Jesus responds to this in the past few weeks. Now, for some that don't hate him, that, that are open to him, he brings a ministry of restoration, comfort, and rest. But for those who hate him, resist him, speak evil of him, what have we seen? We've seen that he brings words of judgment. And Jesus speaks some strong words that aren't necessarily comfortable for us and certainly not for his opponents. So that's kind of the context, and we're going to see that continue today. I remember very well when I was in high school, my junior year, I had my first girlfriend, Reagan Penaluna, and she broke my little high school heart. And as usually is the case with high school relationships, uh, it wasn't going to go anywhere. And after a few months, she dumped me. And of course, I was devastated. You, you, you know the drill. But then... Not there soon after, she, uh, there soon after, she wanted to be friends. And what that means is she still wanted to talk on the phone all the time. And in my mind, that was really hard for me. That didn't really compute. And I'm pretty black and white as a person in most things. And like talking on the phone all the time still like just felt like a whole lot of gray to me. And I was not down for that. I was emotionally getting jerked around. And I wanted to be all in or not at all. Like this middle ground of kind of having your cake and eat it too, it just didn't sit very well with me. Well, Jesus is going to express a similar thing at the outset of our text for today. He's saying you, you can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. You, you can't continue being what I would say, duplicitous, fake. Let's look at what he says here to, to his opponents in verse 33. He says this. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. There's a strong statement. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings, brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth 
evil. He's just saying, come out and be real. He's saying, you guys want to show that you're good? You, you put on a display and give the impression to everyone that you're good, that you're pious, that you follow God? But you're not. He's saying, just come out and be real. He's saying, I know that you're not on the side of God. You give that impression, but I know the real story. I'm on the side of God. And so if you're not on my side, you're not on the side of God, period. So he's saying, stop the religious game with your position and power and authority, but you're totally missing it. He's saying, you're on the side of the devil, so just go all the way with it. Just be real. Just be a bad tree. Be all the way. Quit pretending. See, your deeds of opposing me and your words of opposition to me, just they, they tell the whole story. It, it nullifies all your other pious pursuits. Now, now, as you can imagine, these are heavy words for the Pharisees. And he continues. Look at verse 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. This is a strong warning to them. What, what Jesus is simply saying is this. What matters on the day of judgment is going to be this. Who are you? Are you in Christ or are you not? Are you with Jesus or are you not? Have you trusted Jesus to be your righteousness for you as a substitute in your place or have you not? Have you listened with ears to hear or have you not? And if you are in Christ, if you are united to Christ, if you are on Christ's team, here's the kicker that connects to this text. Your words are going to reflect that. Your words are going to reflect that new heart that you have. Of course, not perfectly, but there's going to be a trajectory of your life. Like, a way to make this more applicable to us is think about it like this. Are the words that you use the exact same as they were 20 years ago? The way in which you use words, either to bring life or to bring destruction, is it the same as it was 20 years ago? If the answer is yes or worse, then there might be reason to ask yourself, am I really a Christian? Is there evidence of God's spirit being alive in my life? See, words reveal who we are. Now, there's always going to be con men. There's always going to be... Um, examples of words being used that aren't accurate um, in the short term. But think long term. Think long term. The words you use reveal who you are. Jesus is just saying, pay attention to someone's words. Over time, it's going to lead you to who they really are. And what he's saying to the Pharisees is on the judgment day, your words that you have used against me is going to reveal the heart that you really have, and you will be condemned. Heavy words for the Pharisees. Well, in light of this, they respond. Look at verse 38. 
Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, why would they say this? Why would they say this? They just saw one. Look back at verse 22. Verse 22 says, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. Look back at verse 10 of verse 12, of chapter 12. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jump down. Verse 13, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he's done signs already twice in chapter 12. What more do they want to see? Well, we see all over the Gospels that Pharisees do not have soft hearts usually. Nicodemus might be an exception. Jesus knows that they're coming not because they're teachable, it's clear that Jesus knows their motives and that their motives are not pure because his response, look at his, his response. His, remo- his response makes it clear that he knows their hearts. Look at verse 39. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation. There it is. He knows they're not teachable. He knows they're not humble. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Now, keep in mind, Jesus did signs all the time. He did signs for those that were humble and teachable. His mother asked him to to turn water into wine, and he did it. He was talking to the woman at the well, John chapter 4, and he just basically told her all about her life. That was a sign that he's the Messiah. He was drawing her to himself. But these guys are different. They have a hard, hard heart. And he says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Meaning, those who hate him just just keep asking Jesus to give him more and more proof. No, faith isn't enough in you. I just need you to break it down. And when you break it down for me, logically, I'm just going to keep asking you for more and more and more. I'm never going to believe. There's never going to be enough proof. I'm just going to keep asking for signs. Keep asking for signs. We've already seen two in chapter 12, and we want to see some more. But the deal is those who hate Jesus, they don't need more proof. They don't need more evidence. They need a heart change. I mean, the Bible says book of psalms the sky above us the heavens declare the glory of god like when you look up to the sky that's evidence enough that god is there and he's all powerful there's enough evidence just look at creation the bible says look at the testimony of history and who jesus was and what he did i'm getting ahead of myself for those who hate jesus they don't need more evidence they need a heart change And there's a lesson here, I think, for us that we can learn from Jesus. There's a time when we engage in evangelism that we want to appeal to evidence and proof and the logic that flows from the Christian worldview. I would recommend a book called Making Sense of God by Tim Keller. Making Sense of God by Tim Keller. It's, it's written for those that don't yet believe, that are looking for, man, does the Christian worldview, does it actually make sense? Is that possible? There's a place for that. There really is a place for that. 
But biblically speaking, logic, evidence, you're never going to checkmate someone logically, back someone into the corner logically and have them go, oh, okay, now I'll become a Christian. Now I'll follow Jesus. That's not how it works. What did Jesus say in John chapter 6? Listen to these words. Jesus said in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. So we can bring all the evidence that we want, but the heart rules the mind. And Jesus rules the heart. God rules the heart. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. That's what Jesus is saying to these guys who demand a sign. If God doesn't change your hearts, you'll never respond. And the evidence right now is that your heart is just hard toward Jesus. See, the deal is what you think is usually a slave to what you love. Did you hear that? What you think is usually a slave to what you love, not the other way around. So for the Pharisees, it might be, I love my power and my prestige and my pride way more than I love the presence of God in my midst right now. And so it doesn't matter what Jesus, the presence of God in my midst right now, it doesn't matter what he does because I love my, my, my power and my prestige as a religious leader way more than the presence of God. So no matter what he does, I'm not changing my mind because I'm in love with power and prestige. It's not about logic. The logic is right there in flesh and blood. Jesus does these miraculous signs. The evidence is clear. So you see what I mean? The heart, the mind will follow the heart. What we think is a slave to what we love. You truly need a heart change. We truly need a heart change that will be displayed. The evidence of that is a willingness to listen, a willingness to say, Jesus, I don't need more signs. You, you showed us enough already. I'm willing to follow. So in our evangelism for us, Madison 2020, by all means, appeal to the mind. By all means, get the Tim Keller book and hand it out and ask, man, 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 maybe we should have a book discussion, a book club about this book. Would you be interested in that? Be, that's a great idea. But know for sure that that's only going to get you so far. Ultimately, if someone turns and repents and believes and has eyes to see, we know then that God is doing a work in their heart. So let's pray as well. We appeal to the mind. We pray that God would change hearts. We appeal to the logic and the evidence, Christian worldview. It makes sense. But along with that, we pray that God would change hearts. We pray that God would raise the spiritually dead because apart from that, there can be no ears to hear. And in addition, let's, let's not put God to the test. That's what these guys are doing. They're just putting him to the test. Like, just, would, would you do some more stuff? We want to see what, what you really have. You know, at times for me, I know I've said in my heart, 
or maybe in prayer, like, God, if you would just give me a sign, then I would really follow you. If you would just make yourself more real to me. God's word says, just look to the heavens. That's as real as it gets. Look to the starry sky. I think God would say to me, if I pray to him, Lord, just make yourself more real to me. He would say, if the testimony of history and experience in your life and, and the word of God and how that corresponds to the reality of truth in your life, if that's not enough, now what will be? Man, if I write something in the sky for you, is that really going to be enough? See, this passage of Scripture shows that the heart can be deceitfully wicked. I truly don't need more evidence. What I probably need is more eyes to see and more ears to hear. And so probably what I need more of is like the guy in the Gospels who came to Jesus. He needed His daughter needed to be healed. And he said, you know, Jesus, can you do this? And he said, I can do anything for those who believe. And he says, I believe Help my unbelief. That's more the response that I think God wants from us. Not, hey, God, would you just make yourself more real to me? Hey, God, would you just give me another sign and then I'll really follow you? But no, it's like, man, if I recognize that my faith is weak, just confess. Jesus, Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, I believe. Man, would you help my unbelief? I find that I'm praying that a lot these days. I believe, Lord, would you help my unbelief? I'm not trying to put you to the test, Lord. I'm not demanding anything from you. But I need your help. I think that's the kind of humble prayer that God loves to answer. Let's get back to our text and see how Jesus continues to interact with these guys. Verse 39, he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So now he's getting into some Bible. He's getting into some Old Testament, which they were experts in. Verse 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So right here, he's just predicting his resurrection. He's saying, I'm going to be resurrected from the dead. And that's going to be the ultimate sign that I am who I say I am. And we know from the testimony of Scripture that even this did not change their heart. They don't need, enough, they don't need more signs. Verse 41, Jesus explains to them what happened. In the Old Testament, the book of Jonah, preaching Repentance to the people of Nineveh. Verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And this is a hard word. He's just saying your resistance is going to lead to your condemnation. He's basically telling them you're going to hell. You're on the path to hell. For those that think they're the upper echelon of the religious elite, I mean, these are fighting words, right? He's saying you're, you're, the evidence of your heart right now is leading to your condemnation. And, and, and he's comparing them to the people of Nineveh, wicked 
Gentiles, wicked people. Ninevites were notorious for horrendous, brutal, savage deeds. But they heard the word of God, repent and believe, and they did it. They heard the word of Jonah, repent and believe, and they did it. They had ears to hear. They demonstrated soft hearts, willingness to listen to God's word. They didn't demand more evidence and resist and resist and resist. They heard, believed, and repented. And and Jesus is saying, check this. Someone, something greater than Jonah is here right now in your midst. In the flesh. And your heart is still hard. He's, He's just arguing from the lesser to the greater. He's just saying, how much worse are you guys than Ninevites? Because the greater Jonah is here right now and you're missing it. He says, your judgment will be harsh on that day. Let's keep reading. Verse 42. The queen, he goes to another Old Testament narrative here about King Solomon. He's just giving him a, a Bible lesson. This is, this is amazing. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment of, with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, he says it again. Something greater than Solomon is here. So the backstory here is here. Backstory here is that there's this an event in King Solomon's life, and he has this visit from this king or from this queen from another location. And the whole point that Jesus is making is this woman had ears to hear God's appointed king. She wanted to listen to him. She wanted to hear what God's appointed king had to say. She had ears to hear, willing to, willing to listen. That's the point in these examples from the Old Testament. They all had ears to hear and were willing to listen, but Jesus' opponents refuse. He's just saying, if they listen, how much more should you? But I want us to, to step back and take notice of what Jesus is doing here. He's using this language of greater than. And he's already done it in chapter 12. I don't know if you remember, but look back at the beginning of chapter 12 at verse 6. Matthew 12, verse 6. Look at, look at what it says. I tell you something greater than the temple is here. So three times now in chapter 12, greater than the temple, greater than Jonah, and greater than King Solomon. He said it. Now, what are these three things? These three things are very, very important. So let me, for those of you who might be new to your Bible, let me just bring you up to speed on what Jesus is doing here. So what was the temple? Jesus said he's greater than the temple to the Pharisees. The temple was the place of sacrifice, the place of the priests. It was the religious center of the life of God's people in the Old Testament. The priests were the main people in the temple. You go to the temple to receive the forgiveness of God, the substitutionary atonement of God, the the, the declaration of your forgiveness. Verse 41, he says he's greater than Jonah. Who was Jonah? So we've got the priests, we've got Jonah, what was he? He was a prophet. And then we've got verse 42, who was King Solomon? He was the king. So what Jesus is doing 
in very dramatic language, is highlighting the three main roles in the life of the religious people. I'm sorry, in the religious life of someone who followed God in the Old Testament. The prophet, the priest, and the king. These were the three roles that Israel's life just revolved around. And Jesus is just saying, I'm the great high priest. I'm greater than the temple. I'm greater than all that they did. All that they did points to me and the time is now. All the Old Testament prophets like Jonah, they're pointing to the great final prophet. I'm the final prophet who would speak perfectly for God every time. And he's saying all those Old Testament kings like King Solomon were pointing to your need for a great ruler of God's people who would have all authority in heaven on earth. You see what he's doing here? You see what Jesus is doing here? He's summarizing basically all of the Old Testament and saying, I'm the point. It's all about me. Something greater than all of that. All of that religious life that you Pharisees that you revolve around, it's all summed up in me. I'm the great high priest. I'm the great prophet. I'm the great king. I'm the guy. That's his whole point here. I'm the guy. Now, you can imagine, this is a really bold, bold claim. Again, we see the transcendence of Jesus. It would be like somebody saying today, you know, you're, you're, a, you're a student of American history. In, in maybe fifth or sixth grade, you had to memorize all the presidents. You got a long history of presidents in the United States, starting with George Washington and on they go. Guess what? I'm greater. I'm greater than all the presidents. I'm the true and the final president. I'm the ultimate president, and there's not going to be any better after me. Like, that's a bold claim. Either that's true or it's not, right? Either that's true and you want to be with that guy who makes that claim, or he's just crazy. There's, there's no middle ground here. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's drawing really firm lines. He's saying, you can't be wishy-washy about me. There's really no other option if you understand what he's saying. And I think the same is true for us as we think about this text kind of climbing into our world, climbing into our neighborhood. Man, it's either see Jesus as a lunatic, crazy, egomaniac, and you should shut off the live stream right now because we're just wasting your time if that's true, or stand in awe of the grandeur of king, prophet, priest, Jesus, and worship him with all of your life. Live your life for the glory of this Jesus. So there's only two options, outright rejection or passionate worship where Jesus is all and worth giving all to. That's it. There's no other option. There's no middle ground. Jesus does not give the Pharisees here in this text or us any middle ground. He's just making that clear in our text for today. So the question for us is, what do you choose? 
What do you choose? As you gaze upon the transcendent claims of Jesus in this text, are you willing to fall down and worship Jesus for who he really is? And if the question is, man, I don't think so, maybe then the next best question is, why not? Why not? What is missing? Where do you need to know more? What's holding you back? Where else can you go to satisfy the longings of your heart? Have you found something that's working better? Maybe the answer is yes, and we would say, well, it's probably just a matter of time till that thing leaves you empty and thirsty and tired. So where will you go then? So what have we seen today? We've seen that Jesus responds with power to those who hate his ministry. Those who hate his ministry of restoration by the Spirit of God. And he's given some strong warnings and made some really strong claims about his identity. And I think he wants us to wrestle with those today. You can imagine yourself being alive 2,000 years ago and reading this for the first time. And you would sit there and go, wow, I guess I need to decide too. He's asking the Pharisees to decide. He's asking me to decide. Who is this Jesus? That's why Matthew wrote. And he's asking the same question by his spirit through his word today. So the question is, are you willing to listen? As, are you willing to listen to him as the final prophet who speaks for God as God? Are you willing to submit to the one who says he has all authority in heaven on earth and, and, and submit to his glorious, merciful, gracious rule and reign? Are you willing to receive the intercession of the great high priest who lays down his life as the priest and the sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, substituting himself in our place so we don't have to bear the wrath of God? But there's a substitute, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Are you willing to come to this Jesus? Like these are the ultimate questions of the Christian life. And Jesus just commends himself to us this morning by his word. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. It's, been, it's, it's hard to read sometimes. We confess that. But we do say, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. We thank you for the gift of your word. We pray that you would make hard hearts soft. We pray that you would make deaf ears willing to listen. We pray that there would be eyes that can't see, that you would open to see beautifully the glory of who you are, Lord. We can't manufacture that, so we just ask you to do it by your spirit. Would you do that in our hearts first? And would you make us the kind of people that declare and demonstrate that this message is, is, should be listened to? Pray that you give us that boldness, Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You've been listening to the weekly sermon from the Vine Church in Madison, Wisconsin, a spirit-filled family that makes disciples and plants churches among neighbors and nations through declaration and demonstration. For more information and service times, check out our website at www.thevinemadison.org.